0: I invite you this morning to come with me to two places in your Bible. First, Isaiah, the sixth chapter, a most familiar text. Both of these texts will be likely quite familiar to many of you. Isaiah, chapter six, in reading at the first verse, reading through the seventh. the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away.
1: Your sin atoned for. And now all the way to the end of your Bible, To the book of Revelation, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Revelation 4, 1, after this I looked, and behold, a door
0: standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, and is, and
1: is to come. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, Father, by your promise, by word, by spirit, may
0: we hear and heed this that we have read, what we shall now consider. Do among us what only you can, for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come to the final message in our series on the existence and attributes of God. We conclude with looking at the holiness of God. I suspect you might have figured that out in light of what we sang and the responsive reading and some other things, but for some of you that are just now awakening, this is where we're going. We sang this hymn this morning. I'm quite certain it's one I heard from infancy. It's a hymn that even before my conversion impacted me. Looking back, there could have been any number of reasons for this. It may have been emotional. It may have been sentimental. It might have been artistic. I'm not sure. But once I became a Christian, it became even more impactful. Composed by Reginald. I'm going to assume Hebert, uh, I'll look at my associate and he doesn't know, so I got away with that. Real good, A lovely way to start. Reginald was born in 1783 into a wealthy educated family, very bright as a youth, translated a Latin classic into English verse by the time he was seven. Yeah. So much for my accomplishments. Um, Entered Oxford at 17, won two awards for his poetry. After graduation, he became the rector of his father's church in West England. Reigned there 16 years. He was eventually appointed Bishop of Calcutta in Indians, 1823. Worked tirelessly for three years until weather, travel took its toll.
1: He died of a stroke. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the
0: morning my song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. There are some who would no doubt try to make the argument that what Christians need more than anything
1: else is very practical instruction. Help us, pastor. Help us know what to do. We like a list,
0: and if you can even prioritize it, that would be easier. Five things I need to do, 10 things I need to do, 20 things I need to do. Just give me a list. And if it's a really long one, let me know what's really important so I may pick and choose. Because the fact is, Pastor, my life's a train wreck. I'm emotionally exhausted. I'm physically worn out. Things aren't going well in my marriage. They're not going well in my family. Or maybe those things are all right, but it really stinks at work. My neighbors are annoying. I don't even think the dog likes me. And I don't blame him because I don't like me either.
1: Give me something. Okay. I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you the something who's the someone.
0: Brothers and sisters, our problem is far too often we think what we need is greater instruction and dedication in practices when what we actually need is a deeper, broader
1: understanding of who God is and what this thing is about.
0: I know I've referenced this before. It had a profound impact on me years and years ago. My first introduction to Dr. R.C. Sproul was through his book, Knowing Scripture. I got it. Uh, I was part of the InterVarsity Press Book Club. And I remember I got to pick two books real cheap. Now, I knew I loved J.I. Packer, Knowing God, but he had another one there on, I think it's entitled, God's Words, something akin to that. And then they were recommending this thing by this guy named Sproul, R.C. Sproul. Oh, okay, why not? Knowing Scripture was what it was called. (laughs) I thought, well, that's a cheeky takeoff from knowing God, but I get it. And, of course, then I learned to pronounce it correctly because in the foreword is Dr. Packer's words. It's Sproul, rhymes with soul, get it right because he, he cares. But it wasn't long after that I began to hear more and more about this ministry called Ligonier and more and more about R.C. And then, and, I, and I'm not sure exactly when, I actually got hold of the book, The Holiness of God. And then Ligonier Ministries did what nobody at that time was doing, at least not in any serious way. They created VHS tapes, videos of R.C. teaching, came with a workbook. And between reading the book and watching and listening to R.C., this powerful, glorious sense of the grandeur, the majesty, the greatness of God. R.C. in the book tells about being awakened in the night and just had a tr- tremendous sense that he needed to go to the chapel where he was studying, the university he was studying, college. He said, the chapel was in the shadow of the old main tower. The door was made of heavy oak with a Gothic arch. I swung it open and entered the narthex. Now, being Baptist, we don't have any idea what a narthex is. Think lobby for the moment, all right? The door fell shut behind me with a clanging sound that reverberated from the stone walls of the nave. The echo startled me, it was a strange contrast to the sounds of daily chapel services, where the opening and closing of the doors were muffled by the sounds of students shuffling to their assigned places. Now the sound of the door was amplified in the void of midnight. I waited for a moment in the narthex, allowing my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the darkness. The faint glow of the moon seeped through the muted stained glass windows. I could make out the outline of the pews and the center aisle that led to the chancel steps. I felt a majestic sense of space accented by the vaulted arches of the ceiling. They seemed to draw my soul upward, a sense of height that evoked a feeling of a giant hand reaching down to pick me up. I moved slowly and deliberately toward the chancel step. The sound of my shoes against the stone floor evoked terror-filled images of German soldiers marching in hobnailed boots along cobblestone streets. Each step resounded down the center aisle. As I reached the carpet-covered chancel there, I sank to my knees. I'd reached my destination. I was ready to meet the source of the summons that had disturbed my rest.
1: I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly,
0: allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me, The beat of my heart was telltale, a thump, thump against my chest. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. It flooded my soul.
1: And the terror passed. And another wave, different. I'd fought the impulse to run, now flooded
0: with unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. At once I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing. At once, just to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life-transforming. Now, if you're familiar at all with R.C., you know that he he was big on
1: use of the mind. Something unique happening. Something deep in my spirit
0: was being settled once for all. From this moment, there would be no turning back. There could be no erasure of the indelible imprint of its power. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. I knew in that hour that I had tasted of the holy grail. Within me was born a new thirst that could never be fully satisfied in this world. I resolved to learn more, to pursue this God, who lived in dark Gothic cathedrals and invaded dormitory rooms to arouse me from complacent slumber. What makes a college student seek the presence of God in late hours? Something happened in a classroom that afternoon that drove me to the chapel. I was a new Christian. My conversion had been sudden and dramatic a replica for me of the Damascus Road. My life had been turned upside down and I was filled with zeal for the sweetness of Christ. I was consumed with a new passion to study Scripture, to learn how to pray, to conquer the vices that assaulted my character, to grow in grace. I wanted desperately to make my life count for Christ. My soul was singing, Lord, I want to be a Christian, but something was missing in my early Christian life. I had abundant zeal. But it was marked by a shallowness, a kind of simplicity that was making me a one-dimensional person. I was a Unitarian of sorts, a Unitarian of the second person of the Trinity. I knew who Jesus was, but God the Father was shrouded in mystery. And out of this, the Lord did such a work in R.C. Sproul that I don't know there's any Christian in this room that has not, in some way, benefited
1: from his life and ministry. If you haven't, you will. We make a
0: fundamental mistake when we think that somehow the holiness of God is unimportant or We want it to be slightly diminished, somehow attenuated, so the love of God shines forth and the grace of God shines forth. But that holiness thing, that's so
1: disturbing. My friends, the holiness of God leads us
0: both to a soul crushing despair. And a soul exalting hope. And those things are not contradictory.
1: First consideration. Holiness sets God apart
0: from us and from everything. AW Tozer said, We don't we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. To go back to R.C., he makes this note. In all of sacred scripture, only one attribute of God is elevated to the third degree. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he's merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say He is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of His glory. The picture here is that God is set apart from us And it makes him such an object of awe and adoration and dread to us. God's holiness is transcendent, his greatness and perfection. And thus in all the attributes, all of his attributes that point to the godness of God, this one is over all of them. Every facet of God's nature is spoken of
1: as holy. Did you notice whether it's Isaiah 6
0: or Revelation 4 and even chapter 5? When angels worship around the throne, that is their
1: cry Holy, holy, holy. My friends, this has been so lost
0: on the conscience of Western Christianity,
1: it is no wonder we're viewed as trivial. A God that merely looks like amplified versions of us is no God at all. Michael Horton said,
0: one encounter with God will strip even the most godly heart of any sense of personal integrity. It's not merely an Old Testament phenomenon. It's seen in the New Testament as well. In Luke, the fifth chapter, Jesus teaches in the boat, tells the lads to push out, and we're going to go fishing, and they have so many fish. They can't get the nets in, and they finally get to shore, and here's Simon Peter's response. I love Simon Peter. Simon Peter gives me so much hope. I identify. I'd like to identify with Paul. I identify more with Simon Peter. I am forever opening my mouth and changing shoes. When Simon Peter saw it, Luke 5.8 he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, now hear what his response is. Wow, fish fry. Hey, extra money this month. Wow, gonna, can't wait to get down and tell him this fish story. saying, depart
1: from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What stunned
0: Simon Peter was not the miracle itself, it was the
1: one behind the miracle. Christian, how often are you impressed by the
0: provision of God, the blessing and kindness of God, but don't stop for a moment to think about the glory of the God who has so
1: blessed and cared for you. The writer of Hebrews reminds us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands
0: of the living God. We've often referenced what has sadly been called in years gone by the worship wars where we're trying to figure out what's a right way to worship. I'm old enough to remember when the guitar or a cello. In fact, if it didn't have a keyboard and didn't say piano or organ, what in the world were you doing with
1: it in a church service? I could never think about the whole
0: worship thing without thinking of Calvin Miller's brilliant little story, The Valiant Papers. It was his pivot off of C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letter. Only this time it's letters written by an angel to heaven, and the angels' comments about our worship were most entertaining. I still, this line stays in my head forever. It is atrocious what adenoids do to praise, as an angel listening in a worship service. (laughs) It's just awful. He said, when you compare it with what we do in heaven,
1: he said, it's just terrible. Now he acknowledged there was something glorious in it, but why
0: would we do that? My friends, we come to meet with a holy God. When we think about this, This is what sets God apart. This is why what we do here is of such moment and of such importance and isn't about your preference, my preference. I still think the line is brilliant when somebody comes out and says, well, preacher, I didn't get much out of the worship service today. And the response is, that's okay. We
1: weren't worshiping you. Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan,
0: had a sermon, The Incomparable Excellency and Holiness of God. Great title. And in talking about the holiness of God, listen to his words here. If you don't know the holiness of God is from a positive position, I would describe it to you thusly. It is the infinite rectitude and perfection of the will of God, especially whereby He wills and works all things suitable to the infinite excellency
1: of His own being. Now you mull that over for a little bit. My friends, our
0: God is not a magnification of us. Our God is not us made bigger, better, stronger, more powerful. This is a demarcation that sets god apart from us in fact it sets god apart from all creatures holiness leads us to soul crushing despair and soul exalting hope this holiness sets god apart but also it is god's holiness that is instrumental in our salvation. Now if you would turn, if you'd like, to Romans the third chapter, let me give you some thoughts here. The holiness of God, once you encounter this, once you see this, is a shock to the system. In fact, often we want to avoid thinking about God's holiness. We want to focus on the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. After all, the cross is about the love of God right? Well, yeah. Who's arguing? God demonstrated His love for us in this, while we were yet sinners. What's the rest of it? Christ died for us. That is true. But that from Romans 5 needs the
1: setup from Romans 3, We talk about bringing people to
0: faith. We talk about, you know, getting folks to come to church. We hear people all the time, there's there's still people out there trying to talk about how do you market the church? How do you market the church? God have mercy. Of all the gifts I see in the New Testament, I don't see the gift of marketing anywhere in relationship
1: to how a church functions. We start in the wrong place. How do we get people to like God?
0: That is not the problem according to the Bible. The biggest problem isn't that people don't love God, that people don't like God, that people don't want God. The biggest problem is how does a thrice holy God have anything to do with the likes of us? Now, if I just offended you, I'm glad. You need to be offended. You are offensive to a holy God. There is no salvation without confession that we are sinners that deserve damnation. That's
1: awful blunt, preacher. You ain't seen nothing yet. Paul explains it to us.
0: Verse 21, Romans 3, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means... It's made evident. How? Apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. All have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God of God. Marriage conference this weekend, so good. Uh, Ray in one of the sessions with just the guys, he was talking about how pervasive sin is, and he was taking off from something, I think it was from C.S. Lewis, where he, he, he said, you know, if sin were yellow, he said, I would be beaming, throbbing yellow all the time. And that's true of all of us. Sin is so much a part of us. Verse 24, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did that work? Verse 25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation. That's an awful big word, preacher. Why do you use big words? I'm using the word the scripture uses here. Propitiation simply means a sacrifice that satisfies the justice and holiness of God. The word that's used here is the same word that's used to describe a portion of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? not the Raiders version, the New Testament, Old Testament version. That which was called the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid was solid gold. And they had in that created images of two angels facing one another with their wings extended. And this was viewed in a sense as the throne of God on earth. So, when Paul talks about Jesus being the propitiation, he goes back into the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, primarily versions written in Hebrew with some Aramaic. But so many Jews uh, in the intervening years no longer read Hebrew that a group of 70 scholars, this is the tradition, took the Hebrew and Aramaic and translated it into Greek, and it was called the Septuagint, which means 70. This would have been the Bible of many in first century. The word here, propitiation, hilasterion, is the same word that's used for the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Whenever the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood on the hyssop and is sprinkling the blood, he places the blood on the mercy seat. What Paul does here is he says, Jesus is the place of propitiation. He is the mercy seat. To be received by faith, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, now listen to this final phrase, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, the cross is yes. A demonstration of the love of God. But the cross is also the demonstration of the justice of God. How does a holy God make friends with, adopt into the family, make to be heirs and co-heirs with Christ
1: people like you and I? The cross. Our sins
0: atoned for, the debt paid in Christ. Christian, do you get the glory of
1: this? This should bring peace to your troubled conscience. Yes, you're sinful.
0: Yes, if you got what you deserved, you'd be in hell, but you and I don't get what we deserve. We get what Christ purchased. For us, the love of God is free through the cross to embrace
1: and rescue us. That, my friend, is glorious
0: good news because a holy God, not just holy, 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 is now holy, W H O L L Y satisfied with you because you are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you get that is the basis of assurance?
1: This is the only reason the Lord receives any of us into heaven. It is done. We may approach a holy God now, these next
0: parts I must do quickly. This is a place, obviously, I could have stayed for some time. <laughs> not only is, God set us, is, is holiness what sets God apart, and not only is it the basis of our justification, God's holiness requires my holiness. God's holiness requires your holiness. 1 Peter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Christian, you are called to a holiness of mind, emotions, and actions. But first, note this you are set apart as holy already. You belong to the Lord. That's one aspect of your holiness. It is a positional statement. He has set you apart. Thus the designator in the New Testament when Paul writes and others write and they say to the saints, literally the holy ones, you're His. But there's also a practical outworking, a derivative holiness, the work of the Spirit within
1: us to make us like Finally,
0: God's holy in His nature. He saves us in holiness. He saves us for or to holiness. His holiness should inspire our worship. Tozer once again said there were three things that were mistakes that caused shortcomings in worship. Number one, the mistaken idea that God is a different kind of God than it really is. That makes worship problematic. Second, the mistake of thinking that man holds a relationship to God that, in fact, he does not. That's dangerous. Third, the mistaken assumption that sin is far less serious than it really is.
1: Let me ask you here, huh? Roll back the clock, 30 Thirty-five minutes.
0: Whenever Matt came up here and was leading us in a prayer of confession, and he was uh, articulating
1: our failures, our sins, were you uncomfortable? Did it bother you? Did you sit there and go, Al? 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 oh father yeah that's me that's me
0: now some would say well that's that's just terrible you made people feel bad no the lord by his word and his spirit gains your attention but remember the glorious thing that he began with if we say we don't have any sins what does that make us liars but in confessing our
1: sins, what do we find? Forgiveness. Christian, this thrice holy God forgives you. And he does it not because you're good at it, not
0: because you make promises, not because you're going to work at it harder. He does it because of what Christ has done. You are forgiven. And my friend, if that won't lead you to worship, I'm not exactly
1: sure what will. If you're not gripped by this reality, I have everything because of him.
0: As big a mess as I am, he says, That one's mine.
1: That's my son. That's my daughter. And the enemy says, they're a mess. Doesn't
0: matter. They're mine. I don't see them as a mess anymore. I see them in light of my eternal glorious son who gave them his righteousness and atoned for their sins. Christian, you do lay hold of that, right? Seated at the right hand of the throne on high is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. His presence at the right hand of the Father is the certainty that you and I have been rescued
1: and will be ultimately rescued. Now you've been patient. But here's how I want to close this. I want you
0: to think back, and you're welcome to look if you want. Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision, and all he's basically seeing is the the robe, if you will, the the garment of the Lord on the thresholds of the temple. And these seraphim, these angelic beings who are shouting and crying out, holy, holy, holy. By the way, as you think about worship, bear something in mind. That which occupies angels for eternity ought not be
1: considered a waste of time by you and I. And what's his response to that? Isaiah's tour of the synagogues there in
0: Israel, teaching at the temple, I I saw the Lord. I'm here to tell you how to see the Lord. Hear my testimony. Isn't this wonderful?
1: (laughs) He's devastated.
0: And the only thing that takes away is devastation. Now, don't lose the picture, right? Why do you think Isaiah thought about unclean lips? What is Isaiah's calling? Prophet. What's Prophet do? He preaches was the first thing that Isaiah thought of as being wicked and unholy, (laughs) the very instrument that God used, his mouth. So when the angel goes to the altar and gets a coal, this isn't about burning away sin, it's imagery, it's the sacrifice, it is the altar that atones for sin, okay? you get to the fourth chapter of Revelation, you see John seeing this glorious vision, and he's just overwhelmed by this whole thing. And you get to the fifth chapter, and he, he, he gives us this note, right? It says, the one on the throne had this scroll in his hand. And then a voice goes out, who is worthy to open the scroll? And they search heaven, they search earth, they look everywhere and say, there is nobody worthy to open the scroll. And John weeps. Now, you know, John, you big sissy, you're weeping because nobody can open the scroll. But John knew what that scroll represented. It's what's going to happen. He's in exile in Patmos. What happens next? What about these churches? The seven churches that we just talked about. Are they going to be okay?
1: What's the future hold for us? Stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah
0: is worthy. You know, he says in the fifth chapter, he looks up and he sees not a lion. What does he see? He's a lamb. And the lamb approaches the throne.
1: And he takes the scroll. And all of heaven
0: and earth, all creatures break out
1: into hymn and song, worthy is the Lamb.
0: We get a little picture of it, just a glimpse, in Isaiah 6. Revelation 4 and 5, we get the picture because it wasn't that there was a ram on the altar, that That dumb animal had atoned for Isaiah's sins. That was done in faith and hope for a future day that the true Lamb of God would lay his life down for all of his people and restore a number that nobody can count
1: and leads to worship. Christian, look
0: to that throne and look to the Lamb and remind yourself the nature of God has not changed. He is still the thrice holy God, but he is the thrice holy God who has reconciled you and I to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we are now invited to come boldly to the throne of grace, for that is the glorious salvation you and I are given. See, when the enemy comes to you and says, you messed up, agree with your
1: adversary quickly. You're right, Satan. I have. But it doesn't matter, for what is done on the
0: cross covers and there is no lacking
1: in the grace of this great God. Let's pray. Our Father, may we lift our eyes in wonder, in awe. joy in grief for
0: our sin but in joy that our sins are forgiven
1: may we never treat our father slightingly
0: may it ever be part of our thinking our praying, our worshiping our living holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But may we not be in despair, for if we've trusted in Christ, we are received as being holy as well. Not by our action, but by that of our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: in whose glorious name we now pray.